So this is the panel on Ukraine. Three of us who are here, Moss, Pippa, and myself, were part of a delegation that went to Odessa. We went to Odessa for the May 2nd commemoration of the killings that took place outside of the House of Trade Unions after the coup that took place in Kiev. Our first speaker is, is Maria, who is from Odessa in Ukraine and has been doing a lot of work on exposing what happened there. Hello. Uh, I will give you the short introduction uh, what happened in, in our country five years ago. Maybe somebody knows, somebody don't know. Five years ago, in February 2014, in Kiev, there was a coup called Maidan. It was uh, preceded by a social economic crisis and multi-month demonstrations, which grew into riots with the use of Molotov cocktails and weapons. As in many other countries, these events were provoked and supported by the United States. The United States acts in this way whenever it is in their geopolitical, economical and other interests. In this case, our country, Ukraine, is interesting to the United States, first of all, for the longest border with Russia in Europe. It is so cool to place NATO bases along our border. Not everyone in Ukraine accepted Maidan. In general, the attitude to the coup differed depending on the regions. The west of our country accepted Maidan, the east didn't accept it at all. At all. Odessa is geopolitically in the middle, in the southeast. Here, opinions were divided 50 to 50. Throughout the spring of 2014, peaceful demonstrations of both sides, pro-Maidan and anti-Maidan, continued in Odessa. They gathered more than tens of thousands of uh, supporters. On May 2, 2014, pro-Maidan activists, distinguished by nationalism, Russophobia and right-wing views, organized a march. It should be noted that their supporters, including football fans, came from all over Ukraine to participate in this march. The purpose of this march was to demolish the anti-Maidan camp on Kulikova Field Square, near the House of Trade Unions. As the result of the provocation, after the start of the march in the city center, they were clashed with uh, shooting and Molotov cocktails. After that, the pro-Maidan radicals and nationalists ran to Kulikova Square and set fire to the tents. People who were in tents rushed to the House of Trade Unions to find protection from the brutal crowds there. The radicals, and not only, began to throw Molotov cocktails on the House of Trade Union. The house caught fire. This is a huge house uh, government office. People were not allowed to get out of the fire. Those who still managed to get out were beaten by radicals outside. This event was a turning point for the huge number of people. Many took up arms and went to defend their land and their con con 
convictions in Donbass. Uh, there are still many adolescents fighting there. Five years have passed, but so far this atrocity has not been investigated. Until now, for more than five years, political prisoners have been held in our prisons. Many have been arrested to this day. The uh, investigation is being carried out. But in fact, repressions is continuing against those who took part on the tragic day on the side of anti-Maidan. And I'm very grateful to my American colleagues and to UNAP who took the risk and were able to come to Odessa on the anniversaries of our tragedy. Thank you for your support, for your willingness to to make through justice and ideals. I'm very grateful to those who organize actions in the United States in solidarity with people of Odessa. Our next speaker is going to be Jeff Mackler. And Jeff is a member of the Administrative Committee of the United National Anti-War Coalition, UNAC. He is a leader of an organization called Socialist Action, and he's actually the presidential candidate in this upcoming election. He is a leader, a coordinator of the campaign to free Mumia Abu Jamal. He's been a long-time political and anti-war activist. He's written on Ukraine and many other issues. And if there's more he wants to add on his biography, I'm going to let him do it, and he's going to speak to you now. Actually, uh, I'm under the false impression that this was a panel on Venezuela and not Ukraine, so I've written this pamphlet on Venezuela. So what are the analogies? Quite amazing. It started out by a dispute in the Ukrainian government over whether to accept $15 billion in loans from Russia or from the European Union, with the European Union proposed loans carrying with them massive austerity, like the Greek bailouts, and the Russians practically no austerity. So the Yanukovych, democratically elected government, voted to accept the Russian terms as better. At which point the demonstrations in the Maidan began, 250,000 people. Our cameras were there. And when we distributed socialist literature in the Maiden Independence Square, we were run out of the square, beaten up, our literature destroyed. There were some notables speaking at the Maiden, like uh, Senator John McCain, who spoke on a platform with open fascists, and uh, American foreign minister who passed out cookies to the crowd giving you an idea. One of the most interesting events was the justification for the coup in 2014 in February was that Yanukovych's police openly snipers fired on the innocent demonstrators from buildings atop. And then it became revealed by the Estonian foreign minister who was on the scene who wrote to the head of the European Union 
on foreign affairs, Catherine Ashton, that she was mistaken, and the United States was mistaken in saying that Yanukovych's forces fired sniper fire into the crowd. Instead, it was the fascists that did it. And they did it, of course, to serve as a provocation. And the provocation was followed by the storming of the parliament, the throwing out of the elected government, the election of a new government, which included five openly fascist forces, the reconstitution of the army, which included fascist, anti-Semitic of the World War II period forces, and they proceeded to pass some laws, the first of which banned the Russian language in all of the Ukraine, whereas the vast majority of the people in the eastern Ukraine were Russian-speaking. And then they sent troops to the eastern Ukraine, and these fascist-led troops, backed by the United States, murdered 2,000 people, eastern Ukrainians, who thought that they had the right to speak the Russian language and to continue with their Russian culture. In the eastern Ukraine, virtually the entire Ukrainian army deserted to the side of the rebels who opposed the coup in the east. Virtually every person. And a referendum was taken in the Ukraine with all kinds of international observers. And the results were overwhelmingly, I think it was 96 or 89 percent, to secede from Ukraine and to join Russia. Very few people disputed the results. A war broke out as the new corrupt government sought to establish control. Even officials in the United States, including with the last election, bitterly complained that not only was the government corrupt, but it was despised by the people. Phil was one of the organizers, Baledo, of the protests that UNAC initiated across the United States at Ukrainian embassies, which challenged, as we did in California, the slaughter led by fascist forces of Ukrainians in Odessa. So what does this have to do with Venezuela? We had a panel here yesterday. It's more of the same. The entire U.S. press focused on the mass mobilizations in the Maiden Square, and heroic actions of Americans like John McCain standing on fascist platforms with open fascists. No one bothered to cover that. What were some of the key issues behind this? The eastern Ukraine is the fifth largest source of shale in the world. And prior to it, the shale has been underdeveloped. The Russians, who have among the largest oil reserves in the world were the chief supplier of oil, natural gas, to Western Europe. A majority of the countries in Western Europe use Russian oil because it's easily transported and it's relatively close, as opposed to the United States, whose fracking allowed it for the first time in the modern era to be a net exporter of oil. So the United States sought to literally take over the Ukraine in order to frack the eastern Ukraine to cut off the Russian supply and become the number one supplier of oil. Sounds familiar in Venezuela? 
it's the same thing. Venezuela is the number one source of oil reserves in the world. And the United States openly says if we had a free market country, then corporations like ExxonMobil, whose chief executive officer Tillerson was appointed to be Secretary of State by Trump. Tillerson was sitting in a National Security Council with President Trump, and Trump proposed that the United States increase its nuclear force a hundredfold. And he left the room. And how many of you know what Tillerson famously said? Tillerson, the ExxonMobil chief, said of the President of the United States, he's a f***ing moron, which Trump is. But he's imperialism's moron, who carries out, in a crude way, what Obama and the others, Democrats or Republicans, do every day of the week. UNAC opposed the U.S. war against Ukraine. We were against U.S. support to the fascist government or to any other government that emanates from a reactionary coup. We supported Ukraine's right to self-determination, for the right of the Ukrainian people to decide their own future. We mobilized against the fascist assaults in Odessa, where the fascists forced people in the trade union building to jump out windows where they were murdered. All the pretext aside, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Syria, Libya, Yemen, and every other country in the world, UNAC starts with one simple proposition. U.S. out now. Hands off. Self-determination for poor and oppressed nations threatened by imperialist intervention. United mass mobilizations to defend the right of self-determination of oppressed people the world over. We have many differences on other questions, which is what a United Front coalition is all about. You're supposed to have a broad coalition with different points of view. But at the same time, if we're going to be effective against the imperialist warmongering beast, we need to build a mass united front anti-war movement that opposes the imperialist wars abroad and the wars against working people at home. I'm running for president of the United States against the moron. He's a moron who's the chief representative of imperialism. I'm organizing a national campaign with rallies across the country to win people to the idea that capitalism can't be reformed. It's racism, sexism, warmongering, environmental destruction, and endless wars are inherent in the system. My Green Party opponent who's here today says he's for a 50% cut in the war budget. Howie Hawkins. That is, he's for cutting a half trillion dollars out of the trillion dollar budget. I am against the entire budget. I'm for closing 1,100 bases around the world. I'm for bringing all the troops home everywhere. Bastille style, I'm for emptying the prisons, which have the highest number and percentage of incarcerated people in the world. And for those who need help, a free public health system that rehabilitates those victims, 90% of whom are there for nonviolent crimes. Support our campaign, but I'm just one component of UNAC. Build UNAC, support the struggle to bring the troops home now, and to fight the wars abroad and at home. Thank you. Thank you.
I haven't introduced myself. I'm Joe Lombardo. I'm the UNAC co-coordinator. We're a group of anti-war and social justice organizations across the country. We speak about the wars abroad as well as the wars at home. We think they are very much connected, and the militarization of the police and the militarization that goes on in other countries are for the same reason, done by the same people, and have similar results. If you're not a member of UNAC, I'd urge you to join. We, from the very beginning, saw what was going on in Ukraine at the coup in Maidan in 2014. It was very clear because it came from the same playbook that the U.S. has used over and over and over again. If you think about Syria, for instance, what happened was some people rose up in Syria for better conditions. The U.S. saw it immediately, jumped in there, armed them, brought foreign mercenaries in, brought jihadists in, and created a war that has destroyed that country just like they did in Libya, just like they did everywhere else, just like they're trying to do in Venezuela, has been, been said. So if you have that knowledge, because you've been doing this for a while, you could see what was going on in Maidan. When the United States comes out on one side, the best thing to do is be on the other side. <laughs> and when Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary of State, shows up at Maidan and says, you're doing a great job, keep it up, here are some cookies. Could you imagine if the Cubans or the Russians came to occupy Wall Street? You're doing a great job, here's some cookies. Oh, and by the way, keep it up and overthrow your government, because that's exactly what they said. They did more than that. They paid people to stay on Maidan. They brought the right wing in from around the country who made this fascist force that turned that demonstration into a violent confrontation with the state. And as Jeff said, then all of a sudden snipers showed up and people were being killed. When we went to Ukraine, we first went to Kiev. Part of the reason is if we flew to Odessa, because of the Odessa annual commemoration that goes on on May 2nd for the massacre that took place, they might not let us in. We've had that experience with international observers in the past. So we thought if we went to Kiev, took a train down to Odessa, we'd have a better chance of getting in, and we got in. But we spent a little time in Kiev, and we stayed at the hotel that these snipers shot from. And it has so clearly come out now. They actually have found the snipers. Most of them come from Georgia, actually. And they just admitted what happened. They were asked to come in. They were asked to do this shooting. And you could tell it's them because there were hundreds of videos of these people, some of them wearing khakis, carrying guns, going in and out, uh, working with some of the right-wing protesters who were shuttling in and out of the hotel and the other buildings around Maidan Square. And so you see their faces, and then you see them in the interview saying exactly what happened and who hired them. It was not the police, but they thought if there was these killings, they could escalate this into international, bring people and bring down the government. Our government did that. It's another regime change, just like we've seen before. We walked around Maidan, and there used to be big trees all around Maidan Square. They cut them all down, and now there's little trees with thin trunks that are growing. 
Why did they cut down the trees? Because the narrative they said of who did the shooting did not match the trajectories of the bullets that they were in the trees. The calibers of the bullets were not the calibers of the guns that the police had, the sniper guns. It was evidence. They never took the evidence. They never tried to figure it out. They just said what happened. And then they cut down the trees as a way so they couldn't tell this. Now, when we went down to Odessa, you heard a little bit about what happened there. We heard a lot more how these things were instigated. A very similar thing happened in the center of Odessa, actually right in a park, right across the street from where we were staying again. And the interesting thing there was that park was also the place where the fascists marched to on the day that we were there. I have a little, some video taken by Pippa. I'll try to show it to you before we end here. Where they're marching, torchlights, hang the communists from the trees, we saw the people in Maidan with swastikas on their arms. The police checked everybody when they went into the area. What, what happened on, on the 2nd in May was there was a football game, a soccer game, and it was between two teams within Ukraine. And people came from around the country to Odessa to be part of the soccer team. One of the people who showed us around was the police captain who is no longer a police captain. He quit the police force. He does something else. But he was the police captain in charge of the football stadium on that particular day. He says, all of a sudden, at one point, everybody's phone got these dings. They got these messages. And the messages were, basically, time to go to Kulikov Square, time to wipe out the anti-Maidan protesters. They were very afraid of what Maria has said. You didn't hear about it in the U.S. press, but in Donetsk and Lugansk, they basically kicked out the Kiev government. And the Kiev government, they still now have their own Republic of Lugansk and Republic of Kiev, and they've been, they had been fighting there, and they, they were able to, to defeat the armies of Ukraine. In Crimea, you know what happened. They decided after seeing this right-wing coup that took place with pro-fascists in the front of it, bringing back the name of Bandera, the person that supported the Nazis and organized militias to wipe out Jewish communities in Ukraine during World War II. They brought him back, and some of the leaders now go on his birthday to his statue and do the fascist salute. Those are the people we put in. By the way, if we do a coup... Who succeeds in Venezuela? Those are the kinds of people that you'll see there. That's what they call democracy today, bringing back fascism. So anyway, Crimea voted 90-something percent. We don't want to be part of this anymore. We want to go to our historical roots because until 1956 they were part of Russia. We want to go back to Russia. We don't want to be part of a fascist government anymore. And they left. And one of the things we heard about Odessa, too, is, you see, after the attacks that took place where they massacred people, you could see the videos of people shooting. They have their faces on video. None of them were arrested. They were shooting, throwing Molotov cocktails to burn down the building as people tried to escape. We spoke to one person who did escape and jumped out of the windows. They beat them to death on the, on the ground. They say 48 died. The Odessans say it was much more than 48. 48 died and 100 were wounded. 
Why would they say 48? Because if it was 50, by international law, there are international organizations that demand an investigation. They didn't want an investigation. And they haven't had one for five years. Except this year, the United Nations said something was wrong there. We need to have an investigation. Now they're going to do one. But, you know, they didn't do one then. They didn't take yellow tape of the area to do it off and, and get, collect evidence. So it's going to be very hard to do an investigation. And although they have the faces of the people that did these killings, none of them were arrested. Some of the people that got out of this themselves got arrested. And like 30 people went to jail in Odessa. And the next morning when the Odessans came and saw what happened at that building and saw burnt bodies on the ground and the devastation that took place from their own citizens and their own people who were just saying what historically they've said in Odessa. It was a hero city because they, they resisted the Nazis much longer than anybody thought they could. They marched 30,000 strong to the police station and they just took these people they arrested out of the prisons. They freed them. Like three that are still in jail, by the way. Just the people that were victims, not the people that did the killing. Those people have not been arrested. Those people marched through the streets with weapons, U.S.-supplied weapons, wearing swastikas. And this is what the U.S. supports. But what they were afraid of was Odessa would go the way of Damascus and Lugansk. That would say, no, we don't want to do this, especially when 30,000 people are prepared to march through the street and go to the police station and free these people. They did not want to see that. Odessa is this beautiful port, beautiful city that, uh, you know, they couldn't afford to, to lose. And that's the reason that this massacre happened. It was to try to stop that. And we heard a lot of stories. We heard stories even from one of the people who escaped <coughs> what happened, because some people thought that Odessa would go the way of Lugansk and Donetsk, and why it didn't. And I'm not going to get into those stories. Maybe we can talk about some of them in, in the discussion. But there was that potential, and Ukraine and the United States did not want to see it. The United States wants Ukraine, the largest border with Russia, as it's surrounding Russia with NATO bases right in sight of the border and holding these maneuvers. They want to continue to surround it. They want to eventually destroy Russia. They want to eventually destroy China. They want to eventually destroy any country that they cannot control, because that's what U.S. capitalism and imperialism needs uh, today. What happened on Maidan, by the way, thousands of people came to lay flowers for the people that were killed. And the fascists came from around, around the uh, country oh, to march. Yeah, yeah. The fascist, I'm just showing you this. You can't see it, I'm sure. There's, a, there's one of the fascists who came to Maidan to try to intimidate him. The police did nothing. Uh, I walked up to the guy and I said, why are you here? And he said, no Ukrainian was killed on that day. They were all Russians. And all these thousands of people you see in this, they are all Russians. They're not Ukrainians. This is what he said as he wore his swastika. And if you do not join the anti-war movement, and you do not struggle, you do not come out in the streets, you do not build an organization in your place, that's going to happen in Venezuela, it's going to happen all around the world. That's what U.S. imperialism is today. It will happen here. So let's make sure it doesn't. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to uh, ask...
Griffith to speak next. For the five years, she was the chair of the Green Party in Wales. She has an incredible history of travels to Cuba and solidarity with the um, Palestinian people. She led a, a caravan through <coughs> Europe and then through Syria to get to Palestine. At another point, she went with a delegation to support a Palestinian art project, and they put her and everybody else in Israeli jails, and uh, they resisted in the jail and outside the jail, and she came to us with Ukraine because it's all one fight and it's all one struggle. And there's Pippa, so just... Well, first of all, I'm going to apologize. I'm not going to speak for long because my presentation was largely pictorial and we can't, you know, get this together. I took a lot of pictures when I was there, um, particularly um, as has been referred to by Jeff and Joe from the places where the snipers shot from, both around Maidan Square in Kiev. You can see where it's all been cleaned up. You can see the little trees Joe spoke about, the saplings, because, of course, the big old trees were cut down. They held the evidence, and they weren't going to be left to tell their story. So I, I'm going to try and paint with words the pictures that I've got, like, you know, hundreds of pictures. Kiev is a very, very nice place. It has a huge forest in the middle of it, and it, you know, this prime real estate in the middle of a capital city. It's a forest. It's so beautiful. And, you know, we, we like to think this is because land values in the communist era were not enough to, to prey on a resource such as a forest in a, in a city or a town. And so it was left, and it's been nibbled away just for university buildings, and that's about all. We took a night train down to Odessa, which was a bit of a shame because we missed, you know, seeing the passing countryside. Many of the pictures I took in Odessa really helped confirm ideas we often have about the politics of place. Now, Odessa is a kind of Italian-French style, <laughs> neoclassical kind of there's nothing Russian about it in, in, in the way that we think about that there's no hard concrete just beautiful pictures with beautiful stucco reliefs and carvings and statues and art everywhere it's really such a pleasure to be there and the guy who founded it in 1795 the Duke de Richelieu well it, he didn't find Catherine the Great actually founded the city but he had a you know great plans for this place and Odessa was originally on steppe country which is basically grassland and he clearly as a deep water port it was going to have significance then and, and still does now but he brought tree seeds and saplings from all over the place, all over the world in fact and, he, and if you walk around Odessa, you think, my goodness, what is that tree? I've never seen such a thing. What's it doing here? And so it's such a pleasure to be in this place. Apparently, there's only one street which doesn't have trees in it in the whole city. It's a big city. So you kind of have this strange juxtaposition between the beauty of the place, the <coughs> tree-lined avenues and... Um, you know, pretty, pretty buildings and a genuinely lovely people in there. We met 
quite a few. I spoke to as many as I could. I don't speak the language, but you know, most people, and Google Translate, I mean, travellers, please, we don't have to think about the language so much now. We can just talk into our phones and get a translation. So, um, so you have this beautiful setting, which is as good as any European city, at least as good as any European city, with so much forethought in planning, um, and as I say, the tree-lined streets. The juxtaposition of this with what's going on under the surface is really very interesting. The night I took the video of the torchlight parades and the chanting, hanging the communists from the trees, I mean, this, this unearthly sound that has no place in the society I'm sure we would all like to build for the future. This kind of deeply disturbing undercurrent with these people wearing their swastikas, with these people who you know, are prepared to kill and who are armed and who are tacitly supported by the government of the time and the local government there because the mayor, for example, of Odessa is not an elected position, it's an appointed position, appointed by the last regime. We've yet to see what the current regime is going to do about that. So we have to really think that when I took that video and the following morning we went and had breakfast next door and I showed the waitress and I said, look, you know, this happened just over there last night. And she looked at it in horror. And she said, I am ashamed. And I said, well, you should be more than that. I said, this is happening on your patch. And you didn't even know. And these guys are growing in numbers. They are supported by the police, as was seen in the uh, Kulikovo Square, where so many people were burned alive and butchered. People in Odessa generally, apart from obviously notable exceptions, don't actually know what's going on under their lives. They get up in the morning, they walk down beautiful streets, they go to their work and their conditions are nice, they go home, they, they have their families, and they have, are not aware, many of them, the majority of them, what's going on under their feet. Because the really scary thing is that this is supported by government that these people are chanting they are allowed to magnify their voice they are allowed PA systems I mean when we were in Kulukovu Square with the mothers who were laying flowers on the anniversary of the death of so many people rows and rows of flowers being laid the mothers were not allowed to amplify their voices and say what was on their mind yet the fascists were so what does this tell you? This is blatant. And it is so blatant that we all have to be scared because it's just something that can happen in any country, to be perfectly honest, once you take the lid off the simmering fascism that's under the surface of every country. And once you give it power and you give it the right to speak and you give it the right to march and you give it the right to say horrible things about killing people, you know, hanging people. I mean, it, this is like the KKK. This is like all the fascist movements we've come to despise. But you have to stop it too early. You have to keep that lid on. It'll always be there. You have to stop it early. And my fear is, in Odessa at least, 
They are not stopping it. We have fantastic people, Maria, working underground. The whole movement against fascism has got to go underground because there is even a website with people's names on it and the people who have their names on that website are in fear of their life because they will be targets for assassination. This is how bad it has got that good people trying to organise against fascism have death threats and, and some of them are carried out. So there's not much more I can say, to be perfectly honest, because I wanted to show you so many things. You know, on the surface, where you have a cafe society and tree-lined streets, the corruption underneath and the fear by those who understand of the rise of the right, it reminded me of 1930s Germany. I'm from the UK, and this is all very, very close. I mean, I was actually born at the time of rationing after World War II. It's all very, very close to me. And the stuff I've seen about 1930s Germany is what I was seeing that night in Ukraine. And it's what was seen five years ago in Kulukovu Square, the thugs, the gangs. We have to get the truth out. We have to spread the word, what, what is going out here and in other countries. We have to be part, the peace movement has to be part of the anti-fascist struggle. You know, politics, our politics has to become a form of resistance. And good people have got to stand up and defend and not look away. And I'm looking at your faces now, and you're all good people, you're all here, and I hope that when you are called, you will get onto the streets, because that's where it's going to count. I'm part of the climate change movement, I'm part of Extinction Rebellion, it's doing fantastically in Europe, we are actually getting changes, because we are going out and passively, non-violently, disrupting entire cities, and I think... Movements, all movements working against fascism, against imperialism, against right wing ideology of all sorts, have to get out there, you know, and sustain being out there and start closing roads, closing bridges, closing cities, because that's the only way you're going to get noticed. Thank you for listening. There is a movement against fascism. It's called the anti-Maidan movement, and it is mostly underground because fascists are armed. They'll be killed. We actually spoke to a commander of one of the fascists in uniform, fascist groups. We were Americans. He wanted to speak to us. And so he said, I want you to know, first of all, you know, most people that have a religion in Ukraine or Ukrainian Orthodox or, or Russian Orthodox, but he wanted us to know that he's not. He's a Protestant, like us. He's a Protestant, because he thinks that's what an American is. He says, I have an American flag in my living room. These people understand who their allies are. It's our government. But there is a movement against them. But it has to be underground, because these people carry U.S. weapons, and they have guns, and I'm confident that they will stand up to this. That I think there was something that was seen in this last election. The people we spoke to, the anti-Maidan people, did not have a lot of faith in this comedian that was elected. He's associated with oligarchs, and he got money and so forth. But you have to understand a few things about him. 
in this country where there's fascism, and they were only able to get, even though they mobilized from throughout the country, a thousand fascists to come to Odessa and march. And that's not a big number compared to the thousands and thousands that were there for the memorial. But the... Newly elected president. Newly elected president. <laughs> Some things about him. He's primarily a Russian speaker. He's Jewish. He ran against Poroshenko, who had a hard line that we're going to get Crimea back, we're going to pursue the war in the east, we're going to smash the Russians. He said, we've got to make a treaty with the Russians. He said, we've got to give up on Crimea, that's, that's Russia. And he said, we've got to stop the war in the east. And he got three times the number of votes of Poroshenko. He got 75% of the votes. I think the sentiment is that they want to stop this. The U.S. talks all the time about the people from Venezuela who have left because of the problems and sanctions and so forth. Do you know that Ukraine, not too long ago, had 55 million people? They now have 35 million people. They all left because neoliberalism doesn't work in Ukraine. They can't get jobs. Even people that were anti-Maidan were talking to us, how can we get to the United States? That's the situation. That's what the future is if we don't fight it. I'm sorry to keep on going. Moss was with us on this thing. He's from upstate New York. He does a lot of research on Ukraine. He's been writing. He'll tell you a little bit about some of the history of fascism in Ukraine. And also, right in this state, Ukrainian fascism is growing. And he'll tell you about that. I hope... Oh, I give your own more no, of no, a no, bio. No, no, no. I was more. just going to say, the only thing I would is largely the research is not about the history of fascism in Ukraine, but largely um, Ukrainian far-right, particularly in the United States. Is anyone here familiar with the name of uh, Ivana Suprun, who's the, the Minister of Health in Ukraine? Yeah. Yeah. She, she's a Ukrainian-American woman. She was born in the United States. She posted something on Twitter today to honor the 112th, yeah, 112th birthday of Roman Shekevich, who was the, the Ukrainian insurgent army was created in 1943 by the Bandera-led faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And it had a rather complicated relationship with the Nazis. Technically, it was opposed to Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, but the vast majority individually of the members or the leadership of the UPA did collaborate. But among other things, it prioritized much more over fighting Nazis or Soviets, prioritized the ethnic cleansing of like tens of thousands of Poles in what is Western Ukraine. And so Roman Chekevich was the commander of this, and he died in 1950, but he was born June 30th. And she said his struggle had one goal, to achieve a unified and independent Ukrainian state, and he did everything possible to achieve this. Today we need people like Shekevich in the country. Today, also in 1941, is the day that the Germans and Ukrainian collaborators of theirs arrived to Lviv, which is like the cultural capital of Western Ukraine. And real quick, Ukrainian nationalism is really from Western Ukraine because that was never part of the Russian Empire. It was controlled by Poland and then the Austrian Empire through World War One. at which point that land was then given to Poland. And then so basically up until the Nazi-Soviet pact, that land was not really controlled by Russia or Soviets, except briefly in World War I. But 
On that day, June 30th, the Bandera-led faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, which was established in 1929 and then 1940 split into two. We got one by the OUNM and the OUNB, the B being Bandera. And so the OUNB tried to declare a Ukrainian state, essentially like a Nazi client state in Western Ukraine. And to just very briefly read from that declaration, which was read aloud by Yaroslav Stetsko, who was Bandera's deputy, and basically his the real like ideas got he was basically like the Alfred Rosenberg to Adolf Hitler. And the Nazis didn't want this to happen. They were not going to support independent Ukraine. So Bandera was kept in Krakow, he wasn't allowed to go. So Stetsko was the most prominent member of the OUMB to go east into western Ukraine. And he was declared to be the prime minister of this very short-lived government. It basically existed on paper, because as soon as like Berlin found out about it, Bandera and Stetsko were placed under house arrest and brought to Berlin. It begins by the will of the Ukrainian people, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists under the direction of Stepan Bandera, proclaims the formation of the Ukrainian state for which have laid down their heads whole generations of the finest sons of Ukraine. And mind you, they were encouraged by the ability of like-minded fascists in Croatia and Slovakia to create a Nazi client state. But even when they made their declarations, they didn't even declare their allegiance to Hitler as much and Nazi Germany as much as the OUNB did when it later said, the newly formed Ukrainian state will work closely with the National Socialist Greater Germany under the leadership of its leader, Adolf Hitler, which is forming a new order in Europe and the world and is helping the Ukrainian people to free itself from Moscovite occupation. And then it goes on to say, the Ukrainian People's Revolution Army, which has been formed on the Ukrainian lands, will continue to fight with the allied German army against Moscovite occupation. The Ukrainian People's Revolutionary Army, as referred to, is not the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, which was created three years later. That's referring to this militia, OUNB militia, that first began to be created as they're making their way to Lviv after, it's like within that week or so after Nazi Germany went to war with Soviet Union. And Stetsko actually wrote Bandera at that time to say, we're creating a militia which will help to remove the Jewish population or like to protect the Ukrainian people or something like that. So when the OUNB got to Lviv, they plastered the city with flyers, like encouraging a pogrom. And then the next morning after this declaration was made, this really horrific pogrom, which was in many ways sort of ushering in what people call the Holocaust by bullets in Western Ukraine, was carried out. And some of the research I've done, I think, shows how a lot of this stuff is much more complicated than people realize. Like, for instance, there's a sort of simplistic, I think, idea that the CIA supported Bandera, never stopped, really, and then basically orchestrates like a neo-Nazi coup in Ukraine for geopolitical purposes. But in truth, the CIA, and I'm saying this as someone who's read hundreds, if not thousands, of the CIA documents relating to this, the CIA did not directly support Stepan Bandera, really, at any point, or Yaroslav Stetsko. The thing is, at the end of World War II, the OUND, there were basically two on paper, governments and exiles dominated by the OUNB. One is basically, and I'm sorry this is like tedious, but it's necessary, is that one was basically, Bandera wanted to establish a dictatorship in exile and then basically bring it back to Ukraine. Then, alternatively, you have, while Bandera and Stetsko were then later put in concentration camps, but as privileged political prisoners, they were actually let go in the fall of 1944, 
Okay, so like the CIA didn't support Bandera and Stetsko, but they ended up supporting many of the other people who were named to this short-lived government in Lviv. And then basically they went on to create a new government, underground government, called the Supreme Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council, which was, again, also something that basically existed on paper. And that was created about the time the Ukrainian insurgent army was created, so it was essentially supposed to be overseeing that. But the thing is, so while, when they create this, they come out with these superficial reforms, basically saying, we oppose Nazism, we, we oppose totalitarianism of all kinds, we want to make a democratic Ukraine, and so on and so forth. But really that was geared towards, I mean, that's at the point of the war, when it was clear who was going to lose the war. And the OUMB, at that point, set its sights on World War III, basically put its hopes on that the, after Nazi Germany is defeated, the Western governments will then go to war, like what Patton wanted to do, then continue the war, and then after that, then they'll get their state. But the other thing I wanted to do is when the Western Ukrainians went into Eastern Ukraine, they realized that the Soviet Ukrainians wanted nothing to do with them. The dialects are so different that some Eastern Ukrainians thought the Western Ukrainians were themselves Germans and Polish. And so it was kind of a shell shock. So this new Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council made these statements saying they wanted to support equal rights and all that to get token Eastern Ukrainian support. So anyways, starting from like 1946 to 1948, there's these two governments in exile that are sort of working together, but it's complicated. 1948 is when they finally split, and the Supreme Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council, led by a guy, Mykola Labed, who was basically going to be the deputy minister of security in this new, this 1941 government, they end up leaving the OUMB, and that's who the CIA ends up supporting, basically under the pretense that these are the moderates of the OUMB. And essentially they tried to create like a stay-behind army or whatever in Ukraine, that failed. And so basically, I'm kind of out of time apparently, but like really what happens in the long story is that the Bandera and so were not supported by the U.S. government. But what the U.S. government did do very crucially is it helped whitewash the OUNUPA to justify supporting the moderates who were not really moderate. If anything, they were the bigger war criminals because they were the ones carrying out the ethnic cleansing while Bandera and Stetsko were, in, were imprisoned. But throughout the Cold War, you see... Bandera's and Stetsko's organizations getting linked to, which I could go on and on and on about, is U.S. domestic far-right networks and something called the World Anti-Communist League, which they were, like, leaders in creating. And so, real quick, to end, there's a summer camp near me. I was going to SUNY Purchase, and I ended up moving to New Paltz to kind of get away from the city and everything and sort of work on this research project. So little did I know, when I outside my window over the mountains is this Ukrainian-American Youth Association summer camp, which was established in 1955. 1962, they built a monument, which I believe is the oldest in the world, of Stepan Bandera and Roman Shakevich and Yevgen Konovalets. And they even have one of Petlura from World War I. That's kind of off and out. And so all the OUMB leaders, basically, or not all, but many of the leaders went there throughout the Cold War. And even still, Ukrainian far-right leaders who are organizing against the new, this new president have been coming and um, making uh, these trips to Ellenville. So basically, long story short, I think, is that this is not about, or at least the U.S. government role in rehabilitating the Ukrainian far right, I see less as a conspiracy within the United States government, and more it's about CIA blowback. I will say one last thing, is that the OUNB's 
de facto headquarters in the United States is in Manhattan and has been since 1977. And people think they've got this stuff all figured out about Ukraine. But in fact, there is so much more. But it's about, again, I think, CIA blowback. The OUNB's greatest ally in the United States, Lev Dobriansky, his daughter is uh, important neocon today, but he was basically at war with the CIA. He called the Ukrainians that the CIA supported, he said that they were soft on communism and that they were themselves communists. I could go on and on and on. This stuff is just crazy. But yeah, but thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to have one last speaker, which is Phil Aledo. Phil was a longtime friend and very concerned about Ukraine. He himself led a delegation to Ukraine, a UNAC organized delegation, a couple of years ago on May 2nd. He's leader of the Virginia Defenders, a group out of Richmond, Virginia, and a longtime activist and anti war activist and social justice activist. Well, I timed my talk. I think it's uh, nine minutes and 47 and a half seconds. So I'll just take the extra 13 seconds to say that the Odessa Solidarity Campaign grew out of the UNAC delegation to Odessa that Joe mentioned in 2016, which was inspired by uh, Maria Zakharova, who bullied us into attending. <laughs> we met at a conference in, uh, in Poland, the social forum, and met with Maria and members of the Council of Mothers of May 2. And when we saw the video of the, the massacre, we said, well, is there some way we can help? And we thought they would say, well, you can write an article or support our petition or sponsor our speaking engagement. Instead, she said, uh, well, will you come to Odessa because the fascists are threatening to commit another May 2nd, and we'd like Americans to be there. So we swallowed hard, <laughs> tried to think of a way to get out of it, and couldn't, so we wound up in Kulikovo Square on May 2nd, 2016, and came back and uh, founded the uh, Odessa Solidarity Campaign, which has promoted, I won't say organized, but promoted and encouraged local actions each May 2nd and an international day of solidarity with the people of Odessa. We have a website, odessasolidaritycampaign.org, and we try to keep up with the developments in Ukraine but focusing on the need for an international investigation of the massacre of May 2nd. The talk I'm going to give also compares the coup in 2014 in Ukraine with the present uh, situation in Venezuela. And I wrote about it a few months ago and then listened to Maria's presentations at three conferences held in D.C. during the anti-NATO protests when they were celebrating the 75th anniversary and her talk was much better than my article, so with her permission, I incorporated quite a bit of her information. When the crisis in Venezuela began to heat up earlier this year, many forces in the U.S. anti-war movement were worried about a U.S. invasion. There was a call to revive the old Nicaragua-era Pledge of Resistance in which people publicly promised to commit acts of civil disobedience in the event of a military action. But the real danger was a U.S.-promoted coup. We can learn a lot about this strategy by studying the 2014 coup in Ukraine known as Euromaidan, where that strategy was successful. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine became independent and declared itself a neutral state. At that time, then-U.S. Secretary of State James Baker had told then-Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not be expanding eastward toward Russia and yet NATO immediately began recruiting former Soviet republics. 
NATO was created in 1949, supposedly to counter the influence of the Soviet <coughs> Union, which had just been devastated by World War II. Today it has greatly expanded and operates on the very borders of Russia, whose annual budget is 9% that of NATO and 11% that of the U.S. Ukraine is seen as particularly important because of its geopolitical position with its more than 1,200-mile land border with Russia. Through a variety of tactics, the West courted the new European elites. Laws were passed allowing cooperation with NATO and free entry of NATO forces into Ukrainian territory. In 2000, for the first time in NATO's history, an annual meeting of its main political body, the North Atlantic Council, was held outside of the NATO member countries in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. This was happening at the same time that Western capital was acquiring large stakes in formerly state-owned enterprises which were being sold to private interests at rock-bottom prices. However, in 2006, then-Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych declared that only a minority of the population favored joining NATO, and so it was too soon for Ukraine to think about doing it. The U.S. naturally was not pleased, and even less so when in 2010, Yanukovych was elected president and the question of Ukraine's entry into NATO was frozen through a state law. Yanukovych, who favored strengthening trade relations with Russia as opposed to orienting towards the West, was now in Washington's crosshairs. So what were the techniques the U.S. used to prepare for a coup in Ukraine? The International Monetary Fund provided large loans which, with their high interest rates, would keep future generations of Ukrainians financially dependent on the West while seducing the new Ukrainian elites who were already open to corruption. Organizations such as the National Endowment for Democracy, which is funded by the U.S. Congress, and the George Soros Foundations made large grants to promote, quote, democracy and, quote, civil society. Western sociologists and professional consultants, funded by Western governments and NGOs, trained opposition leaders in tactics of political organization and nonviolent resistance. According to the UK Guardian newspaper, the foreign donors included the US State Department, US Agency for International Development, National Democratic Institute for International Affairs, International Republican Institute, the NGO Freedom House, and George Soros's Open Society Institute. Soros has bragged that he has funded, quote, democracy training in Ukraine since before the collapse of the Soviet Union. The National Endowment for Democracy has done the same since 1988. From 2011 to 2014, the NEA sent nearly $14 million to support Ukrainian nonprofit organizations and has stated that its grants played an important role during the initial stage of the Euromaidan coup. New media was financed. On the day the coup began, no less than three opposition media outlets were launched. Gromadsky, Spilno TV, and Expresso TV. Their contributions to the coup cannot be overestimated. And there was the deliberate creation of public chaos, a tactic used by the CIA since the 1953 overthrow of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran. Ultra-right paramilitary groups appeared on the streets of Kiev. The nonviolent protests escalated into attacks on security forces. Pro-coup forces attacked protesters with the blame falling on the government and the predictable condemnations by Western media. And there was the direct, open, and bipartisan intervention by the U.S. On December 15, 2013, U.S. Senator John McCain, a leading Republican voice on foreign policy, 
told thousands of Ukrainian protesters camped on Kiev's main square called Euromaidan that, quote, we are here to support your just cause, the sovereign right of Ukraine to determine its own destiny freely and independently, and the destiny you seek lies in Europe. Victoria Nuland, then President Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, was photographed handing out pastries and encouraging the protesters on Maidan. More revealingly, she was recorded discussing with U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Joffrey Piat, who should be the next Ukrainian president. When Piat offered that the European Union would not like her choice, she famously spat out, F*** the EU. She later openly stated that Washington had spent $5 billion since 1991 to establish, quote, a strong democratic government in Ukraine, which was accomplished in 2014 through the coup. As a result of this carefully planned intervention, a corrupt but pro-Russian president was replaced by a corrupt but pro-Western president. One of, one of the first actions of the new government was to try and ban the use of the Russian language in official government business. Openly fascist figures were brought into positions of influence. The reputations of World War II Nazi allies like Stefan Bandera were rehabilitated. Just a few months later, the massacre in Odessa shocked the world when scores of coup opponents were murdered at the House of Trade Unions by a fascist-led mob that set the building on fire. The formerly Russian area of Crimea voted to leave Ukraine and rejoin Russia, and civil war broke out in the eastern Donbass region, resulting in the deaths to date of some 13,000 people. With the goal of Ukraine obtaining full membership in NATO now enshrined in its constitution, the U.S. is close to achieving its main objective. Starting tomorrow, Ukraine and the U.S. will lead a 12-day, 19-nation annual military operation known as Seabreeze, involving air, sea, and land exercises with 32 ships, 24 aircraft, and more than 3,000 troops. With the 2014 coup, the U.S. has succeeded in bringing Ukraine into the NATO fold in practice, if not yet, by formal membership. While the U.S. is obviously still willing to resort to war, the strategy of promoting a supposedly homegrown opposition movement leading to a coup has become the preferred method of the U.S. to achieve dominance over other countries. There are many examples of these color revolutions, so named because the opposition often adopts a specific color or flower to represent its cause. This is not to say in every case there aren't legitimate local grievances or that the government in power is always beyond reproach, only that the U.S. has developed a very sophisticated strategy to intervene and use the opposition movements for its own ends. So what can we expect in Venezuela, based on the experience of Ukraine and other countries where the U.S. has already established control? In Venezuela, the U.S. has followed the path of increasing pressure through economic sanctions while promoting mass demonstrations and political strikes. The sanctions have been devastating, but the calls for political strikes to further disrupt the economy have failed. The U.S. has relied heavily on appeals for the military to go over to the side of the opposition, an approach that has more similarities with Syria and Libya than with Ukraine, but those appeals have largely failed, and it seems the opposition doesn't yet have an armed capability ready to try and overthrow the government. Under these conditions, whether there will be an invasion depends on how quickly the oligarchs in Venezuela and the political elites in the, elites in the United States need control of the region. At the moment, it seems that neither the Trump administration, the Pentagon, or the U.S. public has the stomach for yet another war, but that should be no reason to let down our guard, either with Venezuela, Iran, or anywhere else. 
At any rate, in Venezuela, we should look for continuing destabilization and chaos, the training of opposition cadre, the formation of so-called progressive media, the development of an armed capability by the opposition, massive propaganda against the Maduro government, and the promotion of one of the forms of color revolution. For our part, we need to greatly increase our efforts to educate the U.S. public about the criminal nature of U.S. foreign policy and the many ways the government seeks to gain global hegemony, including through promoting the made-in-the-USA color revolutions. Thank you. Great summary. Questions, discussion? Yeah. I wonder if the trajectory of Natalie Jaresko has been followed. Natalie Jaresko was the finance minister in yeah. Ukraine from 2014 to 2016, immediately after the coup. And in 2000, the end of 2016, she was at, or 17, I don't remember, she was actually appointed in Puerto Rico to be the executive director of the fiscal control board that the United States appointed to take charge of Puerto Rican finances as a result of the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. So Natalie Jesco, right now in Puerto Rico, is heading up practically the dismantling right. job. of Puerto Rico through the austerity measures that the Fiscal Control Board is actually approving. So they are actually dismantling the University of Puerto Rico, pension funds, workers' rights, salaries, the health system, the educational system. Just to give you an example, 500 schools have been closed in Puerto Rico and 300 under the watch of the Fiscal Control Board. So, and just one more last point about Natalie Jeresko. I'm sure she did the exact same thing in Ukraine, but I don't have the specifics. But it, besides all of this, Natalie Jeresko in Puerto Rico earns a salary of $650,000. $650,000. Not only that, but that money that Natalie Jeresko earns, which is more than many heads of state or government, and it's more than the executive director of the International Monetary Fund, that money comes out of the Puerto Rico Treasury. So on the one hand, it's the austerity measures, and on the other hand, they're paying $650,000 to this woman. Besides the fact that all the expenses of the Fiscal Control Board in Puerto Rico are being paid by the government. The reason I'm bringing this up is to also give an example of how imperialism works and how they shift people who play a role in this country to another country, to another country, to another country. Thank, Thank you. you. Rather than answering each question, let's get the four and then we'll answer it. My concern is that actual fascism within the borders of the United States is transitioning through would-be organizers like Stephen K. Bannon, although he's not a fascist, he would organize fascism, that they're transitioning out to an internationalist perspective. And I'm wondering, the people who are familiar with the Ukraine, whether there's connection between uh, fascism in the United States and Ukrainian fascism. Okay. You're next. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, I think what's missing in the discussion is the, the basis of the, of the Ukrainian fascism, which was the, the forced collectivization period. And you can comment about that. The forced collectivization by Stalin and the previous requisitions that were going on during the Russian Civil War, it created a lot of animosity. I think that should be understood and talked about. And I love Phil's presentation, because I was going to bring that point up about how 
what was going on in, in the Ukraine was a form of color revolution, maybe on steroids. And the driving force behind it, the person that was actually there, Victoria Newland, was a member of a project for the New American Century. She's a Zionist Jew who's married to Robert Kaga, who's also uh, part of PNI. So you see, even though they may be Jewish, they're actually supporting fascists in Ukraine, de facto. So, I mean, that should be understood that people around PNAC and neocons are the ones that are driving this foreign policy. You've got um, John Bolton, who was national security advisor under Trump. I guess maybe Trump was put, he had to put him in as a consequence of the pressure that was put on him. But these are the driving forces that are, that are doing the foreign policy. I think that should be understood by the left. I mean, these people are doing it. And I just want to point out the, the Ukraine, I think, because of the election of this new prime minister, I think they realized that following, even though they are doing military exercises, I think they realized that maybe there are better alternatives. Because let's face it, the war continues in the release. They don't want more refugees coming into the country, especially in Europe. And that's part of the opposition. But what you didn't bring out was the, the Belt and Road Initiative. That all the Eastern European countries are signing off on Belt and Road. And that may be a, an, an, an alternative to war, to the NATO expansion eastward. You're next. There seems to be a broader trend among Eastern European countries, including Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, within the U.S. and parts of Latin America, of this rising rate of fascism and the growing movement for it. I'm just wondering if you guys have any commentary on maybe analysis of the deeper reasons for that, and also what you were saying about Ukrainian nationalism within outside of its borders. I am come from a Ukrainian-American family, and I can speak from personal experience that it is uh, it can be very extreme. Um, I, I would suspect that it is almost more extreme in the nationalists who have moved out or like romanticizing the past and trying to reconnect and going further and further right wing than that. And I more so just like trends that I've seen that maybe people can comment on. Also, as far as the source of that and animosity, <laughs> Western Ukrainians have had plenty to, you know, have reasons for resentment even prior to the forceful invasion against Russia. And there's also the role of Russian imperialism as well, not to justify any of the Western and NATO imperialism that's going on, but it's just kind of this, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Can the, any of the panelists that want to address any of those questions do it quickly? Natalie Dresko was born in Chicago, which I think has kind of overtaken New York as the center of like Ukrainian-American nationalist community. I've got some recently, the other day, some very messages from someone anonymously from Chicago that really go beyond anything I like. That they're already like talking about me and like saying I'm... They're crazy. I don't know that she's affiliated with organizations that are affiliated with... Uh, or U.S. organizations affiliated with like the Bandera Group. But Ilana Suprun is, which is why I brought her up earlier. Also, U.S.-Ukrainian far-right relations. There was a great article written by Alexei Kuzmenko for Bellingcat about the um, about a particular example of that. But they do want um, to promote like international kind of relations. Project for a New American Century. Victoria Newland was not on the Project for America, New American Century. That was her husband. But who was on the Project for a New American Century, original co-sponsor of it, was Paula Dobryansky, whose father I mentioned earlier, and who is a very obscure person that no one really is aware of and should be more aware of. And also, 
I forget who this is responding to, but the CIA literally had a memo saying that they wanted, I think 1953, saying they wanted to consolidate the Ukraine diaspora behind their moderate nationalists they were supporting. But they lost out because it was really the Bandera organization that really did either take over or co-opt much, if not most, of the organized Ukrainian diaspora. Anybody else answer? Uh, Jeff and Phil. Well, actually, you asked the key questions of the day. The first point is that in every one of these countries, the United States seeks and finances whatever combination of forces to achieve its ends. In Nicaragua, I'm no supporter of the Ortega government, but the opposition was led by the Catholic Church, Superior Council of Private Enterprise, right-wing students who were Trump supporters, who sought to organize mass mobilizations to bring down the Ortega government. In Syria, it was the same thing, and UNAC and I have written widely on it. Big debate on what happens in Syria, but the essence of it was a U.S.-NATO orchestrated, Gulf state monarchy orchestrated attempt to bring down the Syrian government using everything from the most reactionary al-Qaeda forces to U.S. armed finance armies in Turkey and so on. Leaving aside whatever position you have on Assad, it was an example of imperialist nation trying to bring down for its own economic advantages another country. Now you asked the key question. There is a worldwide not only in Eastern Europe, polarization, with extreme right-wing neo-fascist forces emerging all over Eastern Europe and in the United States, quasi-fascist type mobilization with Trump. Why? The answer can't be seen unless you look at the big picture. The world capitalist system is in a major crisis and it has no way out of that crisis other than at the deepening exploitation of working people everywhere and the demonization of groups, whether they be immigrants, blacks, LGBT, trans right, and every other section of society in order to place the blame on them or scapegoat, which is what the fascists do. But the polarization has to do with the heart of the failure and crisis of capitalism. And the bourgeoisie deciding how far they want to go. In the United States, they calculate that we can get whatever we want from Trump's trillion dollar war budget, trillion and a half dollar tax cut, and smashing of the unions, which was going on under Obama, the great reporter. No different between the Democrats and Republicans. On our side, the question is are we looking at a right wing fascist development in the United States? I say no. What we're looking at is young people in particular who prefer socialism over capitalism. Because materially speaking, capitalism is destroying their lives. With everything from student debt, <clears throat> lousy jobs, poor health care, unaffordable housing, and all the rest. Which also affects 55% of the entire black population says they prefer socialism over capital. They don't know what that is. You, neither do you, but it's a, basically an egalitarian uh, society that they're looking at versus the capitalism that they experience. So there is a polarization. There is a tremendous opportunity for the left to organize, to build united fronts, 
to run candidates and to win, as opposed to blaming it all on initial Trump supporters and saying they're all fascists. Most of them are working people who are suffering under the contradictions of capitalism and are susceptible, if not absorb, the most reactionary ideas, anti-immigrant prejudices. But we can't ignore them. So the real answer is the capitalist crisis generates this polarization. And it's a chance for us to intervene. If we don't, we're in for doom. That's why UNAC in the mass field of organization is out there to unite all forces based on self-determination. If I could make one point, one more point. Quick point. The question of self-determination is important because you said Russian imperialism or Chinese imperialism. I agree that it exists. But what do we say about Syria? Should Syria, should our movement condemn Syria for accepting aid from Hezbollah, Iran, and Soviet Union, and Russia? My opinion, no. They have the right to self-determination. What about Venezuela? In the panel we had here, the Venezuelans are getting food, medical supply, and other supplies from China and Russia. Should we say, well, they're imperialists, therefore, our UNAC should say, Russia, China, hands off? In my opinion, no. Because the right of oppressed nations to self-determination includes their right to accept aid from anyone. And the day we deny it, we flush those developments with the people where the people have the potential to move towards the socialist system. We flush it down the toilet. So self-determination is an operable principle for all oppressed nations, and no revolutionaries are going to get a hearing in those countries if they don't support it. If they give any sign that they are on the other side, or neutral, or against Russia and China bringing aid, and so on. So. On the connections between fascists here and in Ukraine, um, I used to live in a Lower East Side, and there was a section, you know, that was that was like a little Ukraine, and everybody knew that was the most right-wing area, you know, the organizations, the churches, and so on. I was in Charlottesville um, in uh, 2017, and one of the groups that was there that was the most uh, aggressive and, uh, and physical was um, the RAM. It's a revolutionary rising action movement, something like, I know it's R.A.M., different, out of California mainly. And they actually were partially trained by the Azov Battalion of Ukraine, an extreme right-wing neo-Nazi group that the U.S. helped incorporate into Ukrainian military. And I saw that when I was there in 2016, and they still have the, you know, the, the flaming lightning bolt symbol that was a part of the SS units. And there, there is communication between, you know, extreme right-wing elements of this country and Ukraine. But they're two different types of movements, and when you have, when you see the fascists marching in Ukraine, you're looking at the face of real fascism, not the wannabes that we have in this country. As dangerous as they are, they're not what they could, anywhere near what they could be. As far as Stalin's forced collectivization as a factor in nationalism, Ukrainian nationalism existed for decades before the Soviet Union was established, and it was always anti-Russian. And it always it would have opposed anything that the Soviet Union had suggested or forced on Ukraine. And uh, while I'm no supporter of Stalin, I do know that when he made mistakes, uh, including ones that, that caused real harm to people, those mistakes were greatly exaggerated by the West. 
what they call the uh, Holodomor, the Ukrainian famine. U.S. accounts of that never mentioned the fact that there was famine across that entire section of the world at that time. And it may have been uh, more severe in Ukraine because of, of some policies imposed by Stalin, but um, I wouldn't at all blame Ukrainian nationalism on any actions by the Soviet Union, which, after all, did liberate Ukraine from Nazis. The last point I just wanted to make was fascism in the United States. We have a fascist movement. Um, we have lots of organizations. Fortunately, the resistance in, uh, in Charlottesville severely halted the emergence of that movement as a more solidified national movement. But the reason why it's not going much further than it is is really because the ruling class doesn't need it yet. The ruling class doesn't need a physical, violent movement on the streets. If it did, it wouldn't be using the KKK or, or these other fringe groups. It would be using the MAGA movement. You know, the day Trump marches out of one of his rallies and leads his people down the streets and starts beating up protesters, that will have taken a qualitative step forward towards fascism. But they don't need that just yet. I hope that throws... Let me just qu quickly say a couple quick points. One is the woman who talked about Natalia Jeresko. She was an American of Ukrainian descent. If I'm not mistaken, she had to, she became, uh, I'm not mistaken whether she became the finance minister of Ukraine and helped to impose these neoliberal policies. But if I'm not mistaken, she had to become Ukrainian citizen to take that position, and so she got dual citizenship. Now you see her in Puerto Rico and, and other places doing the same kind of thing. She's doing uh, that kind of work. But it was not just her. McCain was another person. When we were in Kiev, there was a famous boulevard in Kiev was named after a communist who led a resistance against the Nazis during World War II. They changed the name of that boulevard to John McCain Boulevard. Um, and to John McCain Boulevard. Um, and uh, just let me say about the rise of fascism. Uh, I agree with what, what's been said. I don't think they need fascism yet, but I think they're thinking about it. And I agree with what Jeff said, that our opportunities are the best ever. Whatever they do, capitalism is in a real crisis, and it's going to squish us more and more and more so more and more people are going to come against it. But what, is the left ready for that? Do we have the organizations to do, to do that? And that is our job. We've got to build a strong left to take advantage of that. But they always have been open to it. In my opinion, in the United States, it takes the form mostly of racism. Racism is used. Others, it's um, uh, for other kinds of nationalism, anti-Russism, and so forth. But racism in the United States is the big aspect of this. And we never dealt with racism in this country, except for a very, very brief period after, after the Civil War called Radical Reconstruction, when some of the, the blacks took over the legislative bodies in the South and passed some of the best laws that this country has ever seen. Um, public education, public transportation, anti-discrimination laws, graduated income tax. And when they started seeing these radical things happening, they wanted a stop to it. And so they supported these fascist-like right-wing militias like the Klan and so forth to stop it, drive them back, deny them the right to vote, all this kind of stuff, and, and foster racism. In Germany, after World War II, they tried to deal with Nazism. They didn't do any way the best. But you study Nazism in the schools. It's mandatory. 
You study anti-Semitism in the schools. It's mandatory. They can't have a, a highway named after Hitler or Goebbels. They can't have a statue of him except in, in, in the museums. Here, if a black goes to a court in the United States, in the South, he probably has to walk by a statue of someone who didn't think he was a human being, yet alone have the right to legal rights. You would drive on a road that is named after, to get to that court who is named after one of these people. So racism is here, and that's the basis of a lot of the Trump movement. That's the basis of a lot that we're seeing. And the fight against racism and the fight against fascism have to be understood in this country as being one together when we fight against them. The question I have is, we're presented a pretty monolithic view of Ukraine and the Ukrainians. Uh, there's obviously a very checkered history. One half of the Red Army was Ukraine, which most people don't know. So what I'm wondering about is, what is the, uh, is there an opposition within Ukraine to the uh, right-wing fascist turn, and what about uh, the pro-Russian forces that clearly, I mean, if you're pro-Russian in Ukraine, there's tremendous uh, intimidation, but I'm wondering about uh, the room that there is for opposition in Ukraine. Well, uh, I think you see that in eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk, and Donbass. Um, I think there's an underground movement that exists, and those are some of the people that perhaps invited us, that even in Kiev on May 2nd, there was a huge crowd putting flowers at the <clears throat> memorial for the World War II people. That is the opposition coming out. And there is this opposition that exists. And I think I am confident that that opposition, some people aren't, will be able to fight this, this, this back. Um, I just want to say a uh, few, uh, few things. Uh, the first is that this year uh, you see another situation. You see that uh, the nations are not so, so strong. Uh, why? Uh, right, uh, this screen totally changed and Marie Jovanovich, she is ambassador of the United States to Ukraine. She leave uh, embassy and they stop any grant programs uh, from the United States government in Ukraine. That's why uh, in our marches, in the 9th of May, we see the uh, very weak and very small amount of nationalists who did uh, radicals who did not pay. That's why they don't know what to do. And uh, all these years, all these five years, uh, it was a very big opposition inside our country. But the people were persecuted by government, but they uh, were using uh, the weapon of weeks. Uh, weak, weak. Uh, explain well. Uh, weapon of weak it means that they are uh, come to the streets uh, and do all they can do under the law. But they show by themselves uh, the opposition. And next, my report on next panel is about right about this. How we win this year? The thing about you know when there was a coup in Ukraine, uh, the son of Joe Biden, yeah. Hunter Biden, actually became yeah. president of the oil company in Ukraine. And I want to also point out in Latin America, I am from Ecuador, and actually I see these fascist movements increasing. It's not called fascism by that name, but you can see the signs that these people are open to to kill people or at least be okay if people are killed as long as they, 
system gets preserved, and that's happening right now in, in my country. And I can tell this, the same thing with the opposition in Venezuela. These people are aligned with paramilitaries in Colombia. They are not, I mean, if they have to kill people to get into power, they will kill people to, you know, just to get down Nicolás Maduro. And actually, their last coup was about that. Killing Nicolás Maduro, killing Teosado uh, Cabello, killing all of the leaders in the left-wing uh, groups in Venezuela, not just the politicians, but even people in the in the neighborhoods, just to make sure once they take down Nicolás Maduro, the people are not going around the, the government palace to protect the government. Yeah, I was talking about a, a coup attempt that happened just recently in Venezuela, two weeks ago, that you haven't really heard about here, where they had these militias from these other countries that were there to try to kill the leaders of the Venezuelan and bomb the the um, communities around the, who, that are supportive of him. And they don't but, call themselves fascists, yeah. but, you know, defenders yeah. of... And, and he, he mentioned uh, uh, Natalia Jurasco, who was American, but also Biden's son, who did become on the board of the main gas company because uh, they wanted to do the fracking, which brings out gas. But, we, need, we need to just wrap up with one thing in mind, and it's our duty as people who can go on the streets without being shot without undue fear, have a duty to advocate for those in countries who cannot go out on the streets because they are very frightened, whether that be anti-fascist, whether that be climate, no matter what the cause is, we have a duty because we can do these things and we are not to be silent. We must go out and advocate for the oppressed wherever. Thank you all for coming.